So I was wondering what I was going to talk about, because I talk about like a lot of stuff. And, and I know it's, uh, it's called the Eightfold Path and my journey and what I've learned in my community service. So I, I came up with this last night. You know how just before you go to sleep, you get in that sort of mixagogic mind state. You're not quite asleep. You're not quite awake. And that's when it all happens. So, so the talk is how to have a good life and what I've learned about that. And then I started to think about good because, you know, good is not the same to everybody. Sometimes a good life is having like a lot of stuff. Sometimes it's not having much stuff at all. Simplicity. Sometimes it's having fame and fortune or just fortune. And, and so I think as we go through life, maybe that changes too. What is good now may not be good in 10 years or 20 years. There's a book out in the, I think it was the 70s or 80s, called Voluntary Simplicity by Dwayne Elgin. And he talked about doctors and lawyers becoming carpenters, that they had investigated that area of their life and found it not to be as fulfilling as they would like it to be. They were successful, but they weren't fulfilled. And then that got me to thinking, well, what's the difference between fulfillment and success. And it seems to me that fulfillment's the inside stuff, and success is the outside stuff. And sometimes the outside stuff loses its shine and glimmer, and the inside stuff starts to become the most important. Now, I wasn't always a Buddhist monk. I, I had a job, and I was a Lutheran for a while, and I was agnostic for a while. And I sort of liked being agnostic because I didn't have to explain anything. And, and then, you know what happened? At the age of 28, I had this epiphany. I woke up one day and said, I have to die. And I had never thought about my own mortality to any great extent. But for some reason, that day changed my life. After 14 years of smoking cigarettes, I quit that day and never picked it up again. I joined a gym for the very first time and started to work out because I thought it may not help me live longer, but I might have a better life while I'm here. And then I realized I also had a mind. So now I was just sort of focusing on the body. And then I said, but what am I going to do with my mind? How am I going to make that better? How am I going to cultivate that? And because I realized I'm going to die, maybe I need a religion so I can die well. And I bought this book by Houston Smith called World Religions, and I read that whole book, and the, sec the chapter on Buddhism, I read it twice. And I said, I'm going to be a Buddhist. Now, I wasn't divinely inspired. I pulled out the phone book. Remember phone books? <laughs> Went to the Yellow Pages Meditation Center. I'm going to learn how to meditate. It was terrible. Because <laughs> I hadn't realized how much pain and suffering I carried with me all the time in my body, and in my mind. And I would sit there for a half hour, 45 minutes, and not have anything to distract me. And it became very apparent that I had work to do. So I continued, and then I found out about the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha. And the Dharma can also mean just ultimate truth, just the kind of truth that helps you suffer less. And it attracted me. I said, I want to I suffer less. I wasn't quite sure what suffering was then. 
But it felt uncomfortable. There was a certain level of anxiety and discomfort in my life, no matter what I did. Sometimes I could divert my attention to something that's fun. But then fun became mandatory happiness. And I was a little disappointed. Because sometimes it was supposed to be fun, and it wasn't. And I said, what's wrong with me? Everybody else is having fun. What do I see that they don't? And, of course, I saw that I'd be dead soon. Because in the 60s, people over 30 you weren't supposed to trust. You know? And they all seemed to, to die at 32 or 33. And I'm going, wow. So I said to myself, well, what's a good life? What do I need to do? What do I need to do to have a good life? And it's in the Dharma, but please think about Buddhism as being secular humanism. It doesn't have to be a religion. To some people, it's a lifestyle. To some people, it's a philosophy. Some find it to be a religion, but it doesn't have to be. So as you hear these words, sort of think about, well, okay, I'm just going to be a secular humanist. I'm just going to be a human being, and I'm going to try to investigate what it means to have a good life. So the first thing I found out was that we needed to have a moral discipline. We needed to have a discipline that just doing what you wanted to do didn't seem to lead to any kind of good life or happiness. So I decided that probably hedonism wasn't the direction I was going to go in. And then I said, well, what... What do they say about having a good life when it comes to morality? And as it turns out, they say five really important things. And I wrote a song about these really important things. So I brought my ukulele. I don't have to play well or sing well because it's a ukulele. But it'll it'll give you an idea of what these precepts are. So every Buddhist in the world, tries to follow these precepts. Not commandments. What they are is something to practice. Something to practice to be just a little more skillful as a human being. So let me get my ukulele here. And you know, when you start playing ukulele, you can never have just one. It's, it's like eating potato chips. So I've got to figure out who I'm going to give my other ukuleles to. I will practice not to take life. Practice not to take life. Practice not to take life. I will practice every day. I will practice not to take stuff. Practice not to take stuff. Practice not to take stuff. I will practice every day. I will practice loving kindness. Practice loving kindness. Practice loving kindness. I will practice every day. I will practice not to tell lies. Practice not to tell lies. Practice not to tell lies, I'll practice every day. I will practice not to get high, 
Practice not to get high. Practice not to get high. I will practice every day. Here we go. So that last one really seems to be the hardest one of all. Because people just like to get high. And the third one actually turns out to be no sexual misconduct. But for the children, I want it to be a little more soft and gentle, so practice loving kindness. So not to kill, just briefly not to kill anything. And it's so difficult. Today when I left the house, the meditation center, my room, my cats, I said to myself, I'm not killing any human beings. And so far, so good. Then I added lions and tigers and bears, because Wizard of Oz is one of my favorites. Didn't kill them either. But now, mosquitoes, flies, ants, and cockroaches. Those are so hard not to kill, because it's such an easy solution, killing. In one moment, you've fixed it. You've taken that life. I used to go fishing, until I started to practice five precepts. And then I looked at fishing as just a euphemism. People will go out on the lake, have a couple of beers, spend half a day, and kill fish. And it turns out to be one of the best days they've ever had. And I'm thinking, wow, what happened to me? When did fishing turn into killing fish? Well, when I started to practice the precepts. Not taking what is not given. Really difficult. It's not stealing. If it's not given to you, you can't use it. And because we're all consumers, we all get receipts all the time, and ownership is transferred to us, supposedly. But do we really ever own anything? I said to myself. And when I look in the mirror, I say, you know what? If I owned me, I wouldn't look like this. I'd look like something else. So if I can't even own myself, how can I own a car or a computer, you know? It's one big illusion. Sexual misconduct. It's so easy in Buddhism to understand what sexual misconduct is. Four things, according to Bhikkhu Bodhi. Number one, don't have sex with people who are married. Don't have sex with people who are engaged. Don't have sex with children. And don't have sex with people against their will. Those are the four things. Now, Siddhartha, before he became a Buddha, he was a father and a husband and realized the importance of community. It needed to be honored and respected. Family unit is always the building blocks of any community. Not to speak unskillfully. No harsh speech, malicious speech, gossip or idle chatter, no false speech. Sometimes it's really hard. We were talking yesterday about noble silence. Sometimes it's really hard not to say something, especially if you're right. But by saying it, will it increase the suffering or will it decrease the suffering? And if if it increases the suffering, even if it's right, it may not be useful to say it, which is so hard. And then getting high. What's wrong with getting high? Doesn't everybody like to get high? Yes, they do. And now we've made marijuana legal. Man, it was not hard enough to drive now. Wait till next year. And every time you get high, you become stupid. 
You can have a master's degree, have a case of beer, and not even be able to put together a complete sentence. So the problem for a Buddhist with getting high is it steals your wisdom. You end up doing dumb things. You might even break the other four precepts and not even know you did, and you create a whole lot of suffering. So my teacher used to say, if you become a Buddhist and you're doing a case of beer a week, to be a good Buddhist, two (laughs) six-packs. Start where you're at. You don't have to be a teetotaler right away. So that's where it sort of begins. That changes our karma. And I have come to the conclusion that to have a good life, you need to have good karma. Now, let me tell you what karma is. It's not that bumper sticker, what goes around comes around, though I really like that bumper sticker. Karma is everything you think, everything you say, and everything you do. That's karma. And then the results of thinking, saying, and doing, we call vipaka. It's the consequence. Karma, vipaka. Cause and consequence. And karma is a real, real important topic in Buddhism because we feel that when we're reborn, what migrates lifetime to lifetime is your karmic energy. Not yourself, not your soul, not your identity, but your karmic energy. So this is how I think karma works. We are a bunch of karma transformers. And in the universe, there's all this neutral energy. And you can't kill it, and you can't give birth to it, but you can change it. So every time you think something, say something, or do something, you're transforming this neutral energy and giving it a moral value. Good karma, bad karma, skillful karma, unskillful karma, more suffering, less suffering. So in Buddhism, we don't have good and bad. We don't have a divine lawgiver who defines for us what is good and bad. Instead, there's a certain personal accountability through your karma. And if what you say increases your suffering and the suffering of others, we look at that as unskillful karma. And contrary, if what you say increases everybody's happiness, that's really good. So you notice those five precepts? They deal with what you say and what you do. So those are the two aspects of karma that the five precepts sort of work with. Not killing, not stealing, no sexual misconduct, not lying, and not consuming intoxicants. But the most important part of karma is what you think. And the thinking part is really difficult. Because sometimes we think we are what we think rather than it's simply a process because we've had a human birth and we have a mind and a body. So it takes a while to disconnect from your thinking. And when you're able to do that, you're able to get your choice back. It's all about choice. You can choose. So we meditate long periods of time, weekends, weeks, months, sitting quietly, doing nothing other than watching thoughts arise, exist, and pass away. Arise, exist, and pass away. 
And when you start to get a handle on watching your thoughts, there is this distance that's created that you don't have to be that thought. One of the problems with thoughts, according to Buddhism, is it's always connected to the three poisons. Three poisons are greed, hatred, and delusion. And those three filters change the way we think and experience the world. So I can give you a personal example of my greed. Happens all the time. Food for less. I feed between 8 and 12 feral cats every day. They live in our backyard at the meditation center. And some get to come in at night and stay in my room. But it costs about $100, $150 a month to feed those little guys. So I go to Food for Less because they got the cheapest cat food. And I get my little shopping cart, and I'm going down the aisle, and I get the cases of cat food. And then I go down the other aisle, and what do I spot? Hostess cupcakes, individually wrapped, a box of eight, under $3. I said, I need that. I need that. So I get the hostess cupcakes, I put them in with the cat food, and I go to the counter, and the clerk looks at me and says, are you married, sir? I says, no. I could tell. Chocolate and cat food. (laughs) So I pay for my food, And then I think to myself, you know, I am so greedy. Eight Hostess cupcakes? How am I going to eat all of those? I should buy eight and give four away. I should balance my greed with a little generosity. And then I end up eating eight. But the thought was there. The thought was there. So this greed, hatred, and delusion really does change the way we experience the world. And in our meditation practice, we're cultivating mind so we can transform greed into generosity, so we can transform hatred and anger into kindness and compassion, and delusion and ignorance into wisdom and insight. So meditation does have a very practical part to it. So there you are sitting. And it's difficult because the mind has a mind of its own. And it wants to do stuff and it wants to think about stuff because that's its job. So we sit and we have objects of meditation. In Buddhism, 44 different kinds of meditation that we can do to balance our mind. And so I chose counting the breath. That's how I started off. 1 to 10, 10 to 1, 1 to 10, 10 to 1. Sensation at the tip of the nose. The cool thing about sensation is you're leaving your concepts behind. See, concepts don't necessarily go away just because you're trying to count. But if you can get into a place of only sensation, then the concepts don't have a chance to arise because it's a direct experience in the present moment. And when you come to the direct experience in the present moment of your life, you start to have insight in ways you've never had before. So I did this, and I just didn't get it. A year, year and a half, it wasn't working for me. And then I thought about something. I said, you know what? I play harmonica. And anybody that plays a wind instrument realizes there's something called diaphragmic breathing. And the diaphragm is connected right to your head. And I didn't know that. And when I was using my diaphragmic breathing... I could really focus. I could get rid of past and future and just sort of settle in 
to the present moment of my experience. So I brought my harmonica. I want to share just a little bit because I just uh, wanted to explain and show how it works. And I just wanted to play a little harmonica today. So, <laughs> so that's what I brought. A little harmonica. For a year when I was working with a juvenile hall, I was in Malibu at Camp Kilpatrick. We started a year-long blues harmonica class. And I got harmonicas donated. And you know what? When you're in juvenile hall, the blues comes easy. We would write songs and they'd talk about their life. They knew exactly what the blues was all about. A good man or woman feeling bad. And that's when the blues makes you feel good again. So here's a little blues in the key of G with my diaphragmic breathing. So it does make you feel better. I feel better because of all that diaphragmic breathing now. And what I found when I went into those deep states of one-pointedness, of focus, I started to see the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom that allow you to be free, that allow you to get your choice back. So let me share those with you briefly. First one, everything changes. You know, it shouldn't be a big surprise to us. I've lived in L.A. since 1969. I have like a lot of favorite restaurants. Most of them are closed now. They changed. Stuff changed. Tastes change. Money changes. And then you look at yourself. You're not the same one moment to the next. When I look at myself at 10 and 20 and 40, I'm thinking, who are those people? They're not me anymore. Oftentimes, I have a memorial service for them, just so they can rest in peace and stop (laughs) bothering me, you know? So everything changes, and when we have a meditation practice, or even just become aware of your surroundings, you start to realize that. And if you try to grasp, cling, and hold on to something, you're going to be ultimately disappointed, because it's going to change. Number two. Everything ultimately becomes unsatisfactory. Now, this is a really hard one to swallow. Because there are so many wonderful moments in our life that just make us feel good and committed. And, and we just sort of sense that life is a good place to be. But if you add in impermanence, then you find 
everything that you experience will ultimately be unsatisfactory because everything changes all the time. Number three. This is really the hardest one of all. But I think musicians appreciate this one. That we are not who we think we are. In order to play that little blues thing, I spent 10 years practicing for two minutes of performance. And in order for that performance to occur, I couldn't be there. I couldn't even appreciate it. I had to be the channel. I had to let all that stuff sort of flow through me, have the performance. People go, yeah, thank you. And I'm going, wow, I wish I could accept that applause. But I didn't do anything. I was just there. And everything sort of did itself. And then I said, well, who is this person who thinks he's in charge? You know, you got your social security number, your driver's license. You are identified as an individual. But ultimately, we are simply a process. A bunch of things that have come together in a very unique way to form us in this moment. And then all the other conditions come for the next moment and the next moment. So the person that walked in this room is not the person that's going to leave. But that's a really difficult concept because we always feel that we're changing, but at a very slow rate. And there, there is something being transferred lifetime to lifetime, moment to moment. There's a causal connection. But when you sit down and practice and then you start to play and then the performance comes, you start to see that there's a certain level of freedom, that you're not restricted in being who that person thinks he is. There's a certain freedom. Everything becomes a possibility, but not if you're somebody, only if you're nobody. And it's really hard to become nobody. Ram Dass, one of my favorite teachers, said, the first 30 years of your life, you're in somebody training which is why we have schools and parents and all sorts of mentors. We're becoming somebody. But in the last part of your life, you're in the process of becoming nobody. And why would that be important to be nobody? Because nobody dies well. If you want to die well, nobody is the answer. But how do you become nobody? Do you just disregard all the people that think you're somebody? Well, no, you, you don't want to freak them out. It's like you're driving on the freeway and you're speeding and they pull you over. Can I see your ID, sir? Yes, of course, here. And then you say to the officer, you know, that's not really me. That just represents a process that has, has occurred for many years. <laughs> and that's when they take you away for counseling. So you have to pretend you're somebody. It's important to be somebody. But ultimately, you aren't. And when you get those few insights, sitting down in meditation, and you, you lose the sense of self, you lose the sense of past and future, and you come to the present moment experience of your life, your heart breaks. Literally, your heart breaks never to mend again. Because now you realize everything in the universe are the conditions necessary for you to arise and be somebody. And that means all the homeless people out there are conditions necessary for you to be who you are. 
And all the people who are dying right now in the hospitals, those are conditions too. All the people that can't find a roof to hide under, those are part of your conditions too. So your heart breaks, and you look around, and it's really hard to say no anymore. Do you got a buck? Do you got a dollar? Well, okay, I know. You're part of me now. And I know it's not going to really change your life very much, but it will change my life because every time I practice generosity, I have less greed. Every time. So I'm really not doing it for the people I'm giving the money to. I'm doing it for me because I want to have less greed. I want to be free from that. And that's why I started feeding cats because I couldn't feed humans. Humans are way too expensive. But I could feed cats. And all of a sudden, one cat came to the backyard of the meditation center, and then he told somebody else. And, then, <laughs> and they just started to show up, and I would just feed them, you know. They never say thank you. It's very disappointing. <laughs> I just feed them. I clean up the dishes. And then around 4 or 5 o'clock, time for dinner, and they're there waiting for me. Hey, Kusala, how you doing, man? What do you got for us today? You've been to food for less lately? And then I just feed the cats, and then I go, and when I started feeding those cats with a, the mind of equanimity, because I, I knew there was no payback, it was never going to amount to anything other than more cats and more food, my life literally started to change. Certain opportunities arose in my life, and I contribute those opportunities to feeding cats. And I don't tell very many people that, because they don't get it. And so I just keep it to myself. But I feed the cats. It's become necessary every day to feed them so I can keep my life going in a good direction. So I can have less generosity, oh, pardon me, less greed, more generosity. More insight to the true nature. Because the cats, if you have pets, you know they don't live long enough. Ten years, twelve years is not long enough. And if you get old, you've buried three, four, five generations of pets. And every time they go away, it is such a sad, sad feeling. Because you couldn't save them. You couldn't do anything. You know? And then you start to apply that to the world around you. And you look at all those friends and family members. And no matter how nice you are and how good you are, if you get old enough, your parents are going to die. And then if you get old enough, your spouse is going to die. And all these people keep dying. My grandmother used to say, all my friends are gone. I have no friends. They all died. She was so disappointed. So the idea of all this sort of stuff is to not cling, have attachment, and not have aversion. To come to a place of acceptance with the way things are. To see in this moment, they can't be any other way. But in the next moment, they can. And it's up to you. It's not relying on hope, you know, or faith. It's saying, okay, what am I going to do now to make my next moment better? Who can I give a dollar to? How can I be kind? How can I change my situation right now so the next moment will be even better? And then the next day, and then the next week. Now, I didn't really know what being a monk was. I didn't know if I would be good at being a monk. I don't know what being good as a monk is, because every monk has their own stuff. It does give you more time to work on yourself, though, you know, because you don't have to work now in the world. You now have a lifestyle instead of a career. 
But the problem with having a lifestyle instead of a career, you never get a vacation. Because you're always there. You don't go away from anything. You just bring it with you. I realized through gratitude that I'm a very lucky guy. So gratitude is important. You don't have to have a lot of complex you know, models for gratitude. What I do in the morning, we have a, I live in the Zendo building, that's our meditation, and I live upstairs, and downstairs we have a wonderful Buddha statue, we have Kuan Yin Bodhisattvas, and it's, it's just marvelous. We have candles and flowers. So I stand in front of the Buddha, and my gratitude is, thank you for giving me something to do, thank you for giving me a place to live. And then I start my day. What an amazing gift that is to have something to do and some place to live. Because you know rents in L.A.? Killer. Killer. So we live together. We have a group home. Well, it's not really a group home, but we have five two-story craftsman houses all built around 1910. They're all falling apart all the time. And we have four monastics, myself and three others, and then we have 20 residents that live with us. And they pay rent, and the rent they pay to live in those buildings allows us not to have to charge for retreats or meditation, and we can pay the property tax, and we can do the constant repairs that are necessary. So it really works out well. Now, I had lived alone until I moved into the meditation center, and I sort of preferred that because I could have it my way. But when you live with 25 people, you never have it your way. And these aren't relatives. These aren't friends. These are just people that came and wanted to live there. So you don't know their background. They tell you what their background is, but you don't know what their background is. And what I found is like going into a tumbler for gems. You know, you get all these jagged rocks, not very pretty to look at. You put them in a tumbler. And it tumbles and tumbles, and they rub up against each other. And by the time they're through tumbling around, they come out, and they're polished, and they're smooth, and they're very desirable. And that's what living in a community is sort of like, too. You're in this tumbler, and you keep rubbing up against people. Some people you like, some people you don't. But those little jagged edges that used to be what you were sort of get smoothed out, and you start to shine, and you start to see that... It's healthy to live with other human beings because they never give you a break. They keep you humble. So at the meditation center where I live, I'd say five or seven people like me, five or seven people don't like me, and the rest don't care either way. And that is perfect because if I give a good presentation and everybody's really happy to see me and they applaud, I'll go back to the center and there they will be. Those are, those are the reference points that balance my ego from being feeling really good about what I've just done. Having a good life, for me, is having the personal discipline necessary not to harm others. To, instead of having hatred and anger, having kindness in every situation. And I don't use the word love. I don't like the word love. Because love, to me, is one of the strongest attachments we're ever going to have. And people kill for love. But they don't kill for kindness, generally. (laughs) 
So in Buddhism, we have loving kindness. Love and kindness, always connected. The way love can be proclaimed in the world is to be kind in the world. That means you love it. And when you love somebody, the best way to show that love is to be kind to them. And it's hard sometimes to be kind when you know it could be different and you've told them that and they don't care. And then can you just be kind in your acceptance of the way things are? Because you know in the very next moment things will change. So we have a loving kindness meditation which I would like to do for you. It's really short and sweet. And it's something I encourage people to do every morning and every evening. It's sort of uploading really good information to start your day so you can go into the world and not make a lot of enemies. And you always want to start with yourself. Until there's no self to start with, you want to start with yourself. Because you need the most work of all. And then you branch out. And it goes like this. May I be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to me. May no difficulties come to me. May no problems come to me. May I always find fulfillment. May I also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. Now I start adding. May my parents, brothers and sisters, friends and relatives, pets, all the people I don't like, and all the people I don't know, May they, too, be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to them. May no difficulties come to them. May no problems come to them. May they always find fulfillment. May they also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. And you can add as many or as little as you want You can have all these categories. But it starts your mind thinking in a different direction. And it's really good to say it out loud to yourself. Because then not only you're speaking, but you're hearing and you're thinking. So that's one way to have a better life, is to be kind and encourage others to be kind as well. But what happens if it doesn't work? What happens if some jerk just wants to get in your face and blah, blah, blah? Is it okay to say no? Absolutely. We all need boundaries. We have work to do. We can't have all these distractions all the time. So it is okay to say no, but we say it in a kind way. It is okay to say forget it, but we say it in a kind way. That's all. So you don't have to lose your boundaries. You just have to be kinder to yourself first and others second. And it works really well on the freeway because everybody will take advantage of you and get right in front of you and then somebody else gets in front of you and you're just kindly driving along. You You might think to yourself, I'm glad I don't have to live forever. Oh, there's my turn off. And there you go. So having a good life starts with you. It really doesn't matter what you do. You can be the carpenter or the lawyer. You can be the musician or the administrator. But it really starts with you and how you experience the world. 
It's all about how we experience the world. So this whole bunch of stuff I've talked about is designed to change the way we experience the world. It doesn't make us last any longer. It may not even make you happier. But you have better karma and fewer negative results. And you can sit peacefully in a cafe all by yourself and everything is just the way it's supposed to be.